Since 1805, Freeman's has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's celebrates Pennsylvania's longstanding legacy as a major and influential artistic region and is committed to the craftsmanship and artistry of the Commonwealth. Whether it is a conoid bench by George Nakashima, a Chippendale carved sidechair by Thomas Affleck, or a painting by Fern Coppage, Freeman's is renowned for selling works by important artists and designers from the Quaker state. Freeman's is always looking for and able to evaluate fine art, furniture, and decorative arts made and used in Pennsylvania from the earliest colonial period through the 20th century. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are. Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Uh, The world feels very different today than it did a few weeks ago uh, when we published our last episode. Uh, The killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th has been a wake-up call. And uh, while the central issue driving these protests has been police violence against Black Americans, uh, we've also been called to open our eyes to an even broader array of racial injustices. And uh, the world of antiques and decorative arts is part of that. We have serious problems as collectors and dealers and researchers and connoisseurs, um, problems not only in terms of the barriers that exist in our field that make it difficult for Black people and people of color to enter, but um, also in the way that we allow white material culture to dominate the space. Now, uh, in some small way, I'd like for Curious Objects to be one place where these necessary conversations can happen, and that is starting today. Uh, My guest today is Tiffany Moman. Tiffany is a historian of material culture with a specialty in uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, Last year, she initiated an exciting project called the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive, um, which will be talking about today. And that's an organization that's working to investigate and document the untold stories of black artisans um, in American history. Um, Tiffany is also a visiting professor at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, which is exciting to me um, because Suwannee also happens to be my hometown. Um, And it's particularly relevant because today's curious object relates to Suwannee history. Um, And it has one of these just unbelievable stories that um, I think you're going to find really uh, fascinating to hear about. But um, first things first, Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Um, now, we have a lot to, uh, a lot of ground to cover, um, but I, uh, I actually just want to start with you. Um, and uh, I'm hoping you can tell me uh, a little bit about what drew you to start studying material culture in the first place. Well, Ben, it it really started when I began doing my family's genealogy about 10 years ago at this point. And, you know, for me, um, at the time I was working in corporate America. And so genealogy became a hobby. And, you know, I was finding people. I was looking at their jobs. I was, you know, putting them into the context of history. And the Mm. next thing I knew, I found myself in in graduate school um, pursuing a, a master's degree and a Ph.D., But what always sort of guided me was my own family. Um, When um, when, as I was growing up, my my grandfather passed when I was five or shortly before my fifth birthday. So I have very few memories of him. Um, But some of the things that I think about when I think about my family and craftspeople and and material cultures, my grandfather, because he was a brick mason. And so Mm. one of the things that, you know, sort of informs me is that, you know, I can go back to my mother's hometown in Arkansas and I can drive around and look at the local Walgreens that my grandfather worked on and I can look at the other buildings that he worked on. And just something about that resonated with me. Right. Because, you know, yeah who he was as a craftsperson, what that means that he's left behind a legacy on the uh, built environment, all of those sort of things, all of those thoughts, you know, really guide my work that I do with the Black Crass People Digital Archive. I love that personal connection, and it's it's such a a, a key reminder um, of the 
very tangible connections that we can actually make to our past um, through through this field of study. Definitely. Now let's um let's jump in because because the podcast is called Curious Objects. Um, let's dive into talking about our our curious object today, um, which relates to the work that you're doing at um at Suwannee, and and we should probably give a little context here because um. You know, Suwannee is it's it's a small liberal arts college in southern uh, Middle Tennessee. It's it's where I grew up, um, and it's where you're um, serving as a as a professor right now. But the history of the university is actually um, intertwined in some pretty startling ways with the history of slavery and the economics of slavery in the South. Um, and so you're involved with uh, a, a project there called the Roberson Project, which is trying to look into some of these questions of, of how the history of the university um, relates to the history of slavery um, and and what we should be thinking about and what people at the university should be thinking about in terms of those connections and that legacy. Um, so do you, do you want to just um, tell us a little bit about the Roberson project and then uh, and then tell us about this this fantastic object? Sure. So um, the Roberson Project uh, really addresses the needs of the university uh, regarding um, uh, slavery, race, and reconciliation. And it really investigates the university's ties to enslavement um, through its founders, um, you know, through um, teachings, through, through basically through the very founding of the university itself. You know, Sewanee uh, was founded to... Um, support the continuation of enslavement. The idea was that you would send your son to Swanee and he would learn how to be a good and proper slaveholder. Um, and so the, the university itself, um, you know, it, it really doesn't come into formation until after the Civil War has ended. Uh, but it's built on that on that legacy, on that foundation. And because right, it's sort of founded first in the, in the years sort of right before the um, the outbreak of the Civil War, and then it's sort of reconstituted after the war is over, right? Exactly. And, um, you know, the what makes Suwannee so unique is that um, the entire campus is about 13,000 acres. Uh, but on that 13,000 acres, you have so many um, sort of monuments or memorials to the Confederacy. Um, so as you, as you walk around campus, you know, here are these uh, one of the uh, most recent events that's happened in the last maybe two to three years was the relocation of a memorial um, to General Edmund Kirby Smith, which was moved from a prominent location on University Avenue, sort of the main thoroughfare of the university, um, to the university cemetery at the request of his, of Kirby uh, Smith's descendants. And so you have mm. these types of events um, happening, but really the Roberson Project, you know, it leads thoughtful discussion. It invites um, speakers in. One of the uh, most recent speakers was a gentleman by the name of um, Richard Cellini, who who leads the Georgetown History Project uh, for Georgetown University, who's also, you know, dealing with these similar issues as, as Swanee. Um, so it, you know, it really facilitates conversation, and it's so wonderful um, to have that group and all of the people that are associated with it um, on campus, especially during a time like this. Yeah. And, and um, you know, one of the things that you've talked to me about um, in terms of your work with the project is um, that there are actually some some objects, um, you know, bringing this back to material culture. Um, you know, there's some objects that uh, tie into that um, um, very complicated and, and uh, troublesome history. And um, the story about uh, this this one particular object, a ceremonial chair, um, when you told me this story, uh, my mouth dropped open. It's just such an incredible series of, um, of events and coincidences. And I think listeners are going to be really um, eager to, to hear about that. So what's some... Um, Tell me about this chair. Actually, first tell tell me what uh, what the chair actually looks like. Um, so the chair is uh, when I say ceremonial chair, it it puts me in the mind of um, like maybe a chair you would find in a Virginia courthouse in the 18th century. It um, it, okay. it it reminds me very much so of a chair 
Um, Colonial Williamsburg has one in their collection. Um, and there's another one. I believe it's in Christ at Christ Church in Eatonton, North Carolina. But it's a um, ceremonial chair. It's it's round on the top, but the arms of the chair have these little columns, three or four columns in a row um, that support the arms. And so you can tell upon looking at it um, that, you know, it was obviously meant, it, it had some type of important use or it was made for someone important. It, it, mm. it very much so gives you the feeling that um, it belonged on a um, pedestal of some sort at a church behind a rostrum or something like that. And yeah, okay. um, someone very important was supposed to sit in it. Right. And it's what struck me um, the most about it was really not the design of the chair itself, uh, but this little gold sort of plaque that has been, that someone many years ago put on the chair um, that basically says, you know, uh, this chair was made by slaves on uh, Leonidas Polk's uh, Layton Place plantation in Louisiana. And so, you know, the, the first thing I thought when I saw that plaque was, well, I wonder how much you know, if that story can be verified. Um, mm-hmm. I also wondered if that story was just one of those, you know, um, sort of revisionist feel-good stories that people of that type right. of, ill, you know, perpetuate or buy like into. Like a lost cause kind of. Exactly. Um. And, um, but um, over the past year since I've been at Swanee, uh, there have been some excellent excellent research conducted on the chair. Um, When I first started digging around into the background of the chair, I discovered that Polk's Layton Place plantation had been um, struck by an epidemic in the 1840s. So my immediate thought was, well, you know, and so many of the enslaved people there died. Um, so my immediately, my immediate thought was, I wonder if, you know, one of those enslaved people who was sickened by the epidemic, um, Mm was the creator of this chair. Um, later research came out um, that Polk's wife, Frances, um, she was a native North Carolinian, and um, upon her father's death and her mother's death, she received, um, she inherited uh, the, some of the enslaved individuals that they own. Um, her father's plantation uh, was called Runaroy Plantation in North Carolina, and I happened to come across a memoir written by um, Francis's great niece where she recalled the vast operation that was Runeroy Plantation and how you had all of these different shops for a blacksmith, for a weaver, and for carpenters. Um, so it turns out that um, after Polk um, died, his wife Frances um, sold the plantation slaves, but she bought a few of them back. And among the two that she bought back uh, were um, Taylor and Abraham. And Taylor is Abraham's son. And they were both carpenters who had been born in North Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. And not only that, but they the chair eventually found itself in a small Episcopal church in New Orleans. And guess who also worshipped at that church? Abraham and Taylor. Um, and unbelievable. Right. And it, you know, the chair ends up at Suwannee because I, I'm guessing the church was in a period of renovation or remodeling. And this chair actually ended up on the curb in New Orleans. And as the story goes, someone thought that, you know, um, since this has ties to Polk, maybe Suwannee would want it. The chair ends up at Suwannee and it sits on the stage um, in the chapel and is used during, you know, official university events. And that was until um, it was decided to remove the chair and actually place it in the university's archives. So I have to say, you know, we'll get into this uh, more later, but, um, you know, I've sometimes heard um, from scholars in the decorative arts that researching um, the history of uh, black craftspeople and the work of black craftspeople is just very difficult because, you know, this documentation is scarce and et cetera, et cetera. But 
this chair is such a an incredible counterexample to that because how many objects, how many early American pieces of furniture do we have that have that kind of uh, provenance um, behind them? You know that we can actually learn and and trace. Um, and that's to to be able to track that geography from North Carolina to Louisiana to Tennessee and generation by generation down to to today. That's that's an amazing lineage. Oh, it is most definitely. Yeah, when I first started researching for the chair, I kept looking for Louisiana examples, um, anything that closely looked like it, and I couldn't find anything. And that was obviously because I was looking in the wrong state <laughs> because that chair has yeah. <laughs> got North Carolina ties. Um, so yeah, yeah, and you know, one thing I think about when we're researching um, Black craftspeople, um, words matter. And I think one of the things that we have to do as we do this work is to get out of the idea of thinking that this work is just too difficult or that it's so hard. You know, I'll admit that it looks different, right? Um, You know, you won't find, you know, uh, white craftspeople listed in a, a bill of sale, right? But you can find enslaved black craftspeople listed in a bill of sale. So the research Mm -hmm. techniques, the approach, the research design, all of that is entirely, um, it's different. And you have to employ different strategies. Now, that doesn't mean that the work is is too hard to be done. You just need to take the initiative to do it a little differently. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, and I want to talk um, more about that later in the um, the conversation, for sure. but I'd love to hear more about um, just you know the the work that you're doing uh, with the Roberson Project and at Suwannee. Have you uncovered some other stories uh, like the one behind this chair, or uh, other stories about um, uh, you know, Suwannee history that have really surprised you? Um, I will say that one of the things that sort of um, when you think about Suwannee as a university and as a, a town. You don't tend to think about very many black people being there. Um, So one of the things that sort of surprised me when I first uh, began looking into research for the Roberson Project um, was that, you know, although the historic African-American neighborhood in Suwannee looks nothing like it did when it was, um, you know, heavily populated by African-Americans, I was I was really surprised how many members of the community, African-American members of the community had such strong ties to Suwannee um, and Mm. such pride in being from Suwannee, such pride in having grown up from Suwannee, uh, because being from the other side of the state um, in in West Tennessee, born and raised uh, in Memphis, you know, it's just not something you think about when you think about Suwannee. And um, one of the things that I've most enjoyed about the Roberson Project itself is its commitment to community engagement. I've really enjoyed uh, meeting community members and looking at the ties between African-American communities in Suwannee and nearby in Deckard and in um, Winchester and Tracy City as well. Um, just the other day, I um, was looking into uh, Bersheba Springs, which is um, not too far from Swanee, and I was yeah. reading through old newspapers, and I uncovered that, well, you know, Bersheba Springs itself, it was a resort town, and um, um, yeah, basically, it was, it was a resort economy based around the, the water springs there, and right. um I soon discovered that within the city of Nashville, so about maybe an hour and a half away, uh, there is a contingent of African-Americans who would travel up to Bersheba Springs every summer just to do that resort work. Um, And so you find all of these newspaper articles of, you know, this man or this woman is leaving for the summer for Bersheba Springs, wish them well on Mm. their trip. And then I uncovered the story of an African-American man, and I'm ashamed to say that his name um, escapes my mind right now, Um, but he would hold church services for these uh, resort workers in his home, and he just became so well-known for his home being sort of a a gathering place for these resort workers um, on their days off. Um, so there are wow. so many stories, and it and one of the things that those stories from those 
um, town's neighboring Swanee sort of reinforce is just how connected we all are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it really fleshes out a picture of um, of Middle Tennessee culture that um, is a lot a lot more complicated than uh, certainly what I w- was sort of told about growing up there. Right. Well, this is maybe a good place to transition to talking about the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive. You know, this is um, it's a, a project that, you know, it's really long overdue. It's something that seems just obviously uh, desperately needed in our field. Tell me about the, the inception of the project and, uh, and what you're trying to do with it. Sure. So um, in the summer of 2018, I had the privilege of attending the Museum of Early Southern um, Decorative Arts Summer Institute. And my project for that summer was the uh, Pinckney Mansion, circa 1750 Pinckney Mansion in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, which burned in 1861. Uh, But the history behind the mansion was that uh, the master carpenter on the project uh, was a black man by the name of Quash, um, who then becomes, uh, he gets baptized in the Anglican Church, and he um, gets the name John Williams. And so my project was the mansion itself, but I really wanted to tell the mansion, the story of the mansion through Quash's eyes. And what mm. sort of shocked me the most was how much documentation existed on the construction of the house, um, how much documentation that Quash hims- or John Williams himself left behind um, when Williams begins the uh, work on the Pinckney Mansion. Um, he'd been enslaved by the Pinckneys, uh, as, as best I can tell, for about at least a minimum of 10 years at the time. Um, so he was a young man in his 20s um, when he begins that project. But he had been um, a very integral part of the Pinckney's lives. Um, Eliza Lucas, um, who's famous for her botany experiments with indigo um, in South Carolina, she marries Charles Pinckney and she brings John Williams over into the Pinckney marriage as one of the enslaved people in her dowry. But before she married him, Williams um, had been a Lucas family carpenter. He built just about everything for uh, for the Lucas family. He trained other enslaved men on their plantations in the carpentry trade. Um, he built wooden indigo vats for Eliza. He built deer coops. Right. He just, he was basically her uh-huh. right-hand man. So much so to the point that when Williams gets placed on trial, uh, shortly, I think maybe three or four years after the Stono Rebellion, Williams gets placed on trial and accused of inciting a rebellion. Um, Eliza Lucas goes to his trial and, and sits in the audience. Um, and I always view that as her showing her support for his innocence. And, you know, slave court oh, wow. trials um, in South Carolina at the time, unfortunately, they didn't um, keep records of all of the cases. Uh, but what we do know from Williams's case was that um, the the court um, found him innocent. Uh, one of the men who was accused with him was hanged, and the other was whipped. Um, and Williams escaped oh with no punishment. And then just, you know, maybe five years after that, he found himself in charge of the carpentry work on the Pinckney Mansion. And lucky for us today, um, Charles Pinckney very much uh, viewed himself as a gentleman architect, so he wrote everything down. Um, So you have in the Pinckney papers um, held at the University of South Carolina, you have the construction records for the house, and included in the construction records for the house are um, John Williams' handwriting. And it's probably one of the most remarkable things I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) Um, you have him signing his name to payment receipts. I can see, you know, the papers show how much he got paid. Not only that, but it shows um, his John Williams ledger. So Williams is keeping up with the enslaved men who are coming to work for him. And he's taking attendance on them. And he's not only taking attendance, but he's also writing down what they did. And so it's just this <laughs> remarkable story. Wow. And um, about uh, a month after the mansion is completed, um, the Pinckney, Eliza Lucas Pinckney and her husband, Charles Pinckney, free John Williams. 
Um, and he is the only enslaved person I have ever found a record for that, that they actually freed. Uh, but they free him, yeah, and right. two weeks later, he puts an ad in the South Carolina Gazette, and he basically says, I'm free, I'm here, and I'm ready to take on any carpentry and joinery work. Um, and you would think so that— he sets up as an independent craftsperson. Yes, he sets up as an independent craftsperson in Charleston, and you think the story would stop there, but it actually keeps going. He— um, finds himself with a royal land grant from William Henry Lyttelton, the South Carolina royal governor, and he establishes a plantation on the Santee River. <laughs> so it just... Holy smokes. <laughs> yes, it's just the, the most remarkable story. But within that story, I, I found myself very drawn not only to Williams, but to these enslaved men um, that he was, um, you know, supervising on the construction of the mansion. And within the Pinckney papers, Pinckney is not only has his own work crew working on his house, but Pinckney is sending in- these enslaved carpenters to other places around the city uh, to do work. And so you have, you know, records that say, um, you know, uh, John went to Thomas Schubert's house on the bay to build a fireplace. And you just have all of these records. And so what I did was I began plotting um, their movements around Charleston on just a a plain old free Google map because I was so interested in where they were going. And and maybe, you know, I was looking at, well, what streets might they have taken to get from the Pinckney Mansion uh, down to the wharves of Charleston? Or how did they, you know, where were they going? Um, What might they have seen seen along the way? Who might they have passed along the way? Was there a way that they maybe didn't want to go. Maybe they didn't want to walk past the workhouse or, you know, something like that. And that really was, little did I know at the time, but that was the start of the project because from there I was like, well, I wonder how many other black craftspeople I can put on a map. And it just yeah. snowballed from there. So um, what's the answer to that question? How many black people have you been able to... Um, to find records for and to start to put together, uh, you know, uh, geographic information and and that sort of thing. What uh, what does the project look like right now? Sure. So we are preparing. We are gearing up for our soft uh, launch this August, and our specific focus right now is uh, Black crafts people in 18th century Charleston, and that includes uh, both free and enslaved. And the project has two components. So one of them is the digital map itself, and the other is the archive, the digital archive. And the archive very much works in the way that you think um, an archive would. We take um, a craftsperson, we assign them a unique identifier, and that identifier follows them from the archive to the map. And what we do is we take the documentation. So let's say, for example, we are looking at the ad um, of a runaway craftsman in the South Carolina Gazette. We connect that primary source um, since uh, the Gazette is very much um, open source, you know, because it's so old. Um, So we take that newspaper clipping of the runaway um, um, black uh, craftsperson we link that um, to an entry in the archive, so you and we dump information into it essentially. So, um, say for example, <clears throat> the ad. We also include an image of the ad, but we um, transcribe it. You know, if the ad says that to please return, um, I don't know, John, um, to. Um, Mr. Moman's plantation on the Santee River. Then we go and we immediately start looking up, well, can we find Mr. Moman's plantation on the Santee River? Hmm. And what are the GPS coordinates to that plantation? And that's how our um, craftsperson ends up with GPS coordinates um, so that then we can plot them on the map. Um, So, yeah, we um, are working in 18th century um, Charleston, South Carolina, and the Low Country right now. Uh, when we go live, and right now we're very much so in the process of cleaning up all of our data. Um, and mm-hmm. I tell people right now we're also in the process of, uh, 
you know, playing around with the website, essentially trying to see if we can break it, you know, <laughs> because we want to make okay. sure, we want to make sure that when it goes live, that if a person, you know, clicks these three things, they'll get what they're looking for. And we want to make sure that, um, you know, everything factors well into like ADA compliant and, and we want everything mm, to be accessible yeah. for all. And so right now we're just in there playing around, seeing, you know, what works, what doesn't work, how we can make this um, all look better. So in August, we will launch uh, with our version of what we call our master map. So it's the individual map where every craftsperson um, gets a GPS point on it. Um, and then we'll also launch with um, the archive. And this first launch, we are um, expecting about 700 to 1,000 names. And every six weeks, we will drop at least 500 more names um, into the archive and the digital map. And so it will just, it's, it's a project that we don't see as, you know, just one thing and we're done. It's going to keep growing. And one of the interesting components of the website is that we will have a page for contributions. So if any scholar, any museum curator, any genealogist um, has a black crafts person in their family, no matter the location, no matter the time period, they'll be able to use the website portal to drop that information in there. And we will add those craftspeople um, to, to the digital archive with attribution um, to the contributor. Um, later on. Right, so there's a crowdsourced uh, element. Yes, yes, definitely. And um, later on this fall, we will be moving on into Tennessee, um, obviously, because that's my home state. Uh, but we'll be Excellent. looking at Black Crafts people in Tennessee. And from there, we've got an entire list of uh, places that we feel like sort of meet the criteria and have the potential um, to give us enough to populate um geographic areas. Now, for listeners who are um, interested in following the project, um, you know, looking at it when it goes live and maybe even participating or, uh, you know, contributing some names that they're familiar with, uh, what, what should they be doing right now? Um, they can follow us on Instagram at uh, blackcraftspeopleda. Um, they can also visit the website at blackcraftspeople.org. There's a link on the website to the Instagram page as well. Um, but right now, our main portal to get information out um, to the public is the Instagram page. Um, and we use that to do um, um, every Tuesday and Thursday, we push content out, um, whether it's just some research that we've done on our own, uh, we link research done by others. Uh, but it's really just brief introductions <clears throat> to African-American craftspeople. And it's basically our way to um, basically talk or engage um, with the public. It's been exciting for me to see some pieces of silver up there on your Instagram page. Oh, great. <laughs> We'll be right back after this with Tiffany Moman. First, I just want to say, as always, thank you for listening. I really appreciate your comments and your feedback, uh, which you can send to me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com or uh, on Instagram at Objective Interest. Um, Tiffany's organization, the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive, is on Instagram as well at Black Craftspeople DA. And you can see uh, images of the chair online at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. If you'd like to help support Curious Objects, the easiest way to do that is to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Um, those ratings and reviews really help new listeners to find the podcast, um, so I'm very grateful to those of you who are able to do that. This episode is supported by Freeman's Auction. Since 1805, Freeman's has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's hosts many departmental and single-owner auctions throughout the year and are always accepting consignments of suitable works across auction and collecting categories. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house. Sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are.
it was about uh, two weeks ago now, not um, not long, I mean, just a few days after uh, George Floyd's killing, when um, through the BCDA, you, you put out a statement, which I saw on Instagram and, and um, uh, you know, I saw it really widely shared by um, by a lot of people that I follow um, uh, on social media. Um, but you put out a, a really um, powerful and, and very personal um, statement about um, the experience of uh, being a, a Black American in the the decorative arts world. Um, and I was hoping that you would uh, talk a little bit about that and you know, share with listeners something about the um, um, the sorts of experiences you've had that might be different from um, the experiences of, of white scholars and uh, curators um, in this world. Would you want to um, to uh, read that statement now or, or summarize it? Um, sure. So, you know, with everything that was happening about two weeks ago, I felt compelled to say something, but I wasn't 100% sure on what I'd say. I'd sat down <clears throat> and I'd sort of began writing it and then I'd stop and I'd be like, well, you know, and I really sort of took my time because all of it, I don't I don't think people, you know, truly understand how traumatizing it is when things like police brutality happen. And I don't think people really pay a lot of attention to the way that they share the images or the videos. And uh, right. for me, you sort of, you begin to, it, I just, I'll just be honest, it bothers me, right? And so it just became to the point where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I should say something. And so the very first message I wrote was nothing like the, the message that ended up um, getting published. And um, so uh, Victoria, who's one of the interns on the project and handles the social media for us, you know, she was like, hey, you know, I know you were, you know, working on this message. Do you have anything you'd like me to post? And I was like, you know, just give me one minute. And that's when I decided mm -hmm. that I should probably tell the story of what happened to me as a child. And I told it because people needed to to hear it. People close to me needed to to see how real this is, right? And so the, yeah. the story uh and you know, I I probably hadn't talked to anyone <laughs> about this in maybe 20, 25 years, you know. And the story was I, I and I remember it like it was yesterday because this is trauma that you don't forget. You just sort of bury it, right? Yeah. And you live with it until it until something reminds you of it and it bubbles up out of your core. And I think I might have been 10, might have been 11. And um, I would, you know, as a kid, you go outside, you sort of walk around, you look for your friends you usually play with. And sometimes nobody's outside. So you end up, you know, alone. But I was just walking around the neighborhood in, in which I lived and, you know, it was in Memphis, in Memphis. Yes. And uh, minding my own business. <laughs> and I am, you know, headed back to my house. I, I remember I wasn't that far from my house. And then all of a sudden um, there's this truck that's this, and I, I can still see it in my head. There's this blue Ford pickup and it just comes swerving onto the road there are three white men in the cab and me, I'm a little black girl. I'm alone. I'm just walking and they yell at me and they call me an N word bitch. And it, I, it startled me and I just ran. I ran all the way home and I was terrified. Because what if they were following me? What if they were coming back? What, what if they saw where I lived? I was terrified. And I, I ran all the way home and I got in the house and I found my mom 
and you know I told my mom what happened and it's just this moment that I just can't just the look on my mother's face you know Hmm. that you can't even Hmm. send your kid can't let your kid play outside and um and we talked about it and she told me that um something similar had happened to her when she had been a little girl in her hometown in Arkansas and she was walking to school and all I could think about when I think about the moment now is my own children and how that's I never want to have to say that to my own children. I never want to have to say that, well, that all that happened to me too, you know? And I think, and I had to share it because I wanted people to know that you see me out and about, maybe you've seen me at, you know, a, a conference or antiques forum, and you would look at somebody like me and that you wouldn't think that that happened to them. But I wanted people to know yeah. this is how real this is. This happens to even people, even people you 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 know, you think you know, or you know, it it's it's a very real yeah. thing, and it's traumatizing. And and this was you know not to date you, but you're not eighty years old. You know, this was not something that was happening in right nineteen sixty five. This was like nineteen ninety six. So, you know, you would think that, uh, you know, things had changed, but we're constantly reminded uh, that the more things change, the more they actually stay the same. Yeah. Tie that in for me to the BCDA. And how, how does that link up now with your um, your experience in, in the decorative arts world? I think it finally pushed me to really sort of say the things that I've been saying to my decorative arts friends in private. Um, And I really felt like, you know, as a decorative arts scholar, I constantly hear, well, it's too hard to find black crafts people, you know, and all of these other things. And I don't think people fully understand how disrespectful that is why is it too hard to find my people? It just takes a little extra work. It's not too hard, you know? And so yeah. the the conclusion to that statement was me basically saying, you know, it's not too hard. Just admit that you don't want to do the work or just admit yeah. that for your institution, you know, donor relationships and, and, and not making your donors uncomfortable is, is what really matters. I see so many institutions sort of skirt around the issue and I'm like, just address it head on, you know, and, yeah. and, I, and I say address it or admit it so that you can then see who you are. <laughs> you can see that yourself reflected back, hopefully, and understand what that means to people like me in the field and understand what that means um, to your visit, to your black visitors, to your black patrons. And, you know, something I always think about is, you know, people say one of, you know, these sort of stereotypes or myths, uh, you know, a lot of African-Americans don't go to museums. Well, it's because they can't see themselves in your museum. There is no representation Mm -hmm. there. Right. People, when people go to museums, they want to be able to connect with the art or the historical objects. They want to see themselves. And if you've made no gains in that area, if you if you don't have the collections to support that, if you don't know enough about your own collections, then you're sort of dismissing an entire segment of visitors. Yeah. I mean, that's been such a huge problem at Sewanee, you know, not a museum, but obviously, but a, a college, but where, um, you know, there's been this just refusal to sort of look in the mirror um, and think about the, the, the role that they've played themselves exactly. um, in this history. And the, you know, of course the conservative older generations, mostly of donors that you don't want to upset. And so you sort of beat around the bush and you pretend to be concerned without actually doing anything. And uh, it's just a recipe for, for total stagnation. Right. Uh, but you, you told me a story that I, 
I thought was really instructive um, in terms of the this sort of um, supposed difficulty of researching um, black artisans. And you were telling me about um, the example of the Guilford Limner. Oh, um, yeah. And I thought listeners might, might be interested to hear your take on that. You know, one of the sort of examples I kept hearing over and over as a student was just different people I'd come across who were looking for this Limner, who I believe lived in Guilford, Kentucky. And people were conducting all of this research trying to pinpoint who is this person, man, woman, that's going around Guilford and and, and doing these paintings. And you just sort of, I would overhear conversations about people hunting that person down. Oh, I can't wait until I find him. And I've been looking for him for years and so on and so forth. And it just struck me one day that, you know, you can spend all this time hunting down that one craftsman. And, but you don't say that that work is too hard. But the work you say mm-hmm. is too hard is the work to find black craftspeople. And it just struck me as how almost, abs- well, not almost, but how absurd that was. Um, yeah. Because you, you know, yeah, you see I mean, no it, difficulty in, in that continuous work year after year looking for that limner. Right. But, yeah, so... Yeah, but you want to look into, you know, one iron worker in Charleston, South Carolina, who was an enslaved person. And, well, you know, you give up before you even start. Exactly. So what, um, to sort of take a step back and and broaden this a little bit, um, for those of us who are in this field, either as, as, you know, in my case, as a dealer or, um, or as curators or as collectors, you know what? Um, what should we be thinking about, and what should we actually be doing to try to change the way that um, that our field interacts with the um, the world of black craftspeople, and and also the way that we just interact with black people and black culture, and um, and, and sort of historically uh, box out anybody who uh, doesn't fit the mold of a um, you know a, a well-to-do white uh scholar or collector you know what what should we be doing differently i would say um you know just just from my experiences to make sure that you're telling through your exhibits through your educational programs through your interpretations make sure that you're telling you know diverse historically responsible stories Make sure that these stories are, you know, historically informed um, and make sure, you know, that they're inclusive. You know, I, I completely understand that, you know, when you're putting together a museum exhibit, you can only get so many words on that label, um, either before it's too long or before people become disinterested. But make sure that the words that you do put on that label that they are reflective of the humanity behind the object that's on display. So if you know of um, that this object came out of a shop uh, that used the the labor of enslaved craftspeople, maybe you don't automatically attribute that object to the shop's owner. Maybe that attribution is, oh, this came from um, Mm. you know, this person's particular shop, because then that opens it up right? That makes people think, well, that could have come from any, any worker in that shop, right? Which could very, very much so, you know, be the truth. I mean, we, me and you had a conversation about silver dealers and, you know, them putting their stamps on things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were in the, in the back um, molding that silver and adding the repousé to that coffee pot, right? Um, Yeah. So I just, um, I'm all about making sure your stories are inclusive. Remembering that people want to, your visitors want to see themselves in the exhibit. And not shying away from the truth. You know, I I think that's, that's very important. And I think that at some point, you know, when I think about the type of decorative arts world that I'd like to be a part of and that I'd like to contribute to, at some point, um 
you've got to be willing to tell the truth, <laughs> right? And if the truth of the matter is, you know, that this happened, that there were enslaved craftspeople behind that object, tell that story. Don't shy away from that. I really appreciate those words, Tiffany. It's um, um, it, it's a lot of very good food for thought. And I really appreciate your time today. Um, it's It's been great to hear from you. And um, I hope that... Um, listeners um can take something away from this and and um you know think about some some changes that uh it might be time to make yeah and i I think one of my big things is just always uh you know if you if you don't have the answers then maybe seek out someone else who does If, if this you know area is not of your expertise it's okay to ask someone for some assistance uh because in the at the end of the day what we all want is you know a thriving museum community that you know tells these stories the way they deserve to be told and so i i kind of you know i i hear people's frustrations especially from my you know friends that are in the curatorial fields and you know it's i i hear you and i see you and i'm i'm rooting for you you know um, to be able to do what you know needs to be done to make your museums and historic yeah. sites more inclusive. Well, Tiffany Moment, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben. That's all for today. I'll just give one more reminder to send any comments, suggestions, or ideas that you have to curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com. A number of listeners recommended Dr. Momin as a guest for the podcast, and I'm thrilled that you did. Um, If there are others you'd like to hear from in the future, don't keep it to yourself. I would love to hear about it. And again, if you can spare a minute right now before you run off to uh, leave us a rating and a review, I would be genuinely grateful for that support. Curious Objects is published by the magazine Antiques. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delotti. Our music is by Trap Rabbit. And I'm Ben Miller.